Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome back, welcome back to another episode, another wonderful episode of the Black Arm of the Law. Uh, Black Like We Never Left, I'm your host, Carl Payne, and today we have a very special guest. This man is a retired law enforcement official with 32 years of service to this country. Uh, He served as a Maryland State Trooper for 12 of those years, from around 86 to 98, and he was also with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, special agent for 20 years years. Uh, he also served in areas of patrol like SWAT, criminal investigator, physical training instructor and service uh, coordinator and promotional standard review board. He's achieved the ranks of trooper, first class corporal and sergeant. As a FBI special agent, he served in the areas of cold case homicides. I want to get into some of that today. Drug enforcement and terrorism, and I'm definitely going to jump into that. He's also achieved the rank of supervisory special agent and a unit chief. Uh, notably, you were handpicked to be on the counterterrorism unit uh, right after 9-11. Is that correct? That's correct. Ladies and gentlemen, with, a, with accolades and a bio as long as my leg, Please put your hands together and welcome to today's episode of Black Armor Law, Mr. George Green. Welcome, George. Thank you, sir. Glad to be Thank here. you for being here, my brother. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing with us today and, and enlightening everybody with uh, uh, your wisdom and your stories today. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Talk to me about George. I'm, I'm just the average black American like anybody else trying to make it in this tough world. And I have been fortunate uh, to serve in the positions that I've served in. And I, and I give a lot of credit to my brother. Um, he's a year younger than I. He's a, he's a retired colonel in the Air Force. Mm. And as, as, as little boys, when we struggled, we made a pact with each other that we would always, if one made it, the other one would make it. And so that was always my motivation. Uh, he went to the uh, Air Force Academy and, and and he did great things, and I was always just trying to measure up to my brother's standard, and he was trying to measure up to mine. Where did you guys come up at? We grew up in uh, in the city of Baltimore, around the Saratoga area, um, uh, and it, it was tough. You know, my my parents were divorced, and for a while we were with my dad, and and he, because he had a problem with gambling, that made things even tougher. But, you know, when you when you stick together, it was four of us at the time and we stuck together. And then when my mom was able to get on her feet and get situated, she came and got us. And then we used to call my mother the warden and and rightfully so, because she was hard on us. And she always told us that it's already tough to survive. But being black and young men, I have to teach you how to be even stronger to make it. And so she was on us, but I tell you, man, it made all the difference in the world. Yeah, you know, I, I do stand up sometimes, uh, and uh, I talk about my mom. I do stand up, and sometimes I talk about my mom and, <clears throat> and how she was. Yeah, we used to call her the warden too, man. And when I tell you, she was the, the nosiest lady on the planet. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night because I would hear her going through my stuff, my book bags, my drawers and and all of the above. <laughs> and at the time I hated it. You know, I could, I, I was just felt like, you know, I was, it was an invasion. I felt like I was, you know, you know, it was, it, I just, you know, you hate that. Yeah. But I tell you one thing, looking back at it, you know, and, and me being a parent of, of four myself now, I get it. I get it even Amen. more so. 
I get it even more so in the world that we live in today. And and, and that's what's the problem right now with a lot of the parenting and, and the things that are going on in the homes is that we're not policing in the homes the way we should that's be. Right. Get involved. You got to get involved with everything that your kid is doing because you could it makes a difference. You can make you you make a huge difference in your kid's life because you never know what he's dealing with. He or she is dealing with what's going on and how you can be a, 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 of an impact because, I mean, you know, to the extreme, you see, you know, a kid who goes into a school and shoots up a school. Right. Right. That's that's the extreme of of, of us not getting involved. Right. Or even, you know, to the less extreme, just, you know, dealing with bullying, dealing with, uh, uh, you know, questions about sexuality, anything. At the end of the day, you know, the, the first line of defense and offense starts in the home. Start at and, home. We, we, and we have to have that. We have to be more involved with our kids' lives and, and, and be nosy. Ain't no such thing as 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 private passwords or, or you know, especially. Your business is my business. Yeah, yeah. You know, my privacy. Well, I, I pay the bills here. I bought you in here. This is my house. We're not locking doors around here. My kid had the nerve to slam the door one time. You know what I did? I took I took the door off the hinges. I said, you won't slam another one. My mom did the same thing. Yeah, you you ain't slamming nothing. I put the, some of them 1970 beads on the door, try to give them a little bit of, you want some privacy? That's all the privacy. You, get. Be, you know, the beads, when you walk through and they make the noise. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's all you get. But, but I tell so, you, also, what it forced me to do, I run a, I have a martial arts school. I'm a, I'm a martial arts instructor. Mm. I've had the school since 2003. And one of the main reasons I opened the school was to, for the kids that the father wasn't around or, or you were having hard times in the home, so they would have a safe haven. <clears throat> and at the same time, you would get an opportunity to have an impact on them. And the greatest thing that has ever happened to me Jobs have been good. I have been blessed beyond measure. But whenever a kid sees me on the street and they stop me and they say to me, Mr. George, you changed my life. You don't remember. I used to be in your school when I was five. I was seven. I was nine. Now I'm 16. I'm 20. I have a good job. And I want to give you credit because you helped shape me. That's all you can ask for. Legacy. Legacy. That's what it is. That's it right there. That's paying it forward. You know, I, I talk about this all the time when I say, you know, we all have a uh, we've all been given a gift, you know, besides the gift of life. Right. We've all been given a gift and we our gift is also meant for our purpose. Talk about this all the time. And, you know, it, it may not be what you think it is, but once you realize once you realize what that is, it is your duty to be of service. It is your duty to to use your gift for that purpose. And that is to serve and that is to to be a blessing to others. Because then then you're being a blessing to yourself. That's right. You did. That's right. You That's did. Right. It's Sunday. I feel like preaching today. It's gonna be it's gonna be a preaching day today. I feel like preaching today. You know why? Because God is good, man. God all is all so the time. Good. And all the time. God is good. And we right say now. that cliche, but I tell you he truth. is good. It's the truth. It's the truth. Listen, listen, I just tell the truth. There's no such thing as preachy. It's called the truth. That's Sometimes all people don't like the truth. Because the truth my, truth, my truth is going to be in your face. Right. I'm going to be in your face kind of guy with the truth, no matter what it is. Um, all right. Let's let's dig back into it, George. Let's dig into it. Was there something in your youth or that you recognized in your neighborhood, you know, what shaped your decision to go into law? I mean, was there a specific moment? Was there an yes. incident? Well, tell us about that. Tell me about okay. that. <clears throat> First, what kept me out of trouble was we were always involved in sports through the, through the local recreation center. And then we were fortunate to, to play in a organized baseball league, Falls Park Little League. But I, I, what, what really made me go into law enforcement, I was attending a church with my mother. We was visiting a church, and it just so happened that a presidential candidate was visiting that church on that Sunday. I guess I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was just so intrigued by the way the Secret Service handled the president, the, the, the potential president or the one that was the candidate. 
They were up on the rooftop, running down the rooftops of row homes, running beside the limousine as mm-hmm. the, they were. It was it happened to be Kennedy as they were pulling out with uh, Ed wow. Kennedy. Wow. And, and it just, I said, that's what I want to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know that that was the secret service at the time, but I was just impressed on the level of protection that they were giving this particular candidate. And so that was what stuck in my mind. Then we used to watch the show called SWAT. Then, I was going to say, come on, man. Yeah. What's your favorite show? I used to like, yeah. And of course my favorite character was the black character. I'm sorry, but it was. That's right. That's right. And I used to love the part, even in the in the, in the uh, opening scene, when he busts through the window and they come crashing through the window and do that yes, little tuck and roll. <laughs> That's it. You know and how so, many things I tow up in my house being SWAT. <laughs> but but those things like that, they had an impact on you. Number one, to see a a, a black with a role that that was something you didn't see too often. And and and, and one Adam twelve. Mm, uh, that mm. stuck out. Nine one one stuck out, and yes. so watching shows like that was what kind of planted the seed for my law enforcement career. What do you think about Richard Roundtree? Oh yeah, <laughs> Come on, man. he was representing for us, right? He was on a different level than we could ever oh, understand. <laughs> whole another level, man. It was good seeing those things. You know, my my uh, I grew up watching the same stuff. You know, my father happened to be in the Air Force. And so told me, son, if you ever join the, you know, any type of uh, branch, make sure it's the Air Force. Mm-hmm. He said, trust me on this. <laughs> he said, trust me, that's where you want to be. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so that's 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 interesting. So that's what that's what motivated you. Now, coming up through the academy. Right. Tell me of some of the experiences that you had dealing with. Racism. I, I'll go to the Maryland State Police Academy first. Mm-hmm. Um, we were on the, it's a driving track. It was in Montgomery County. And I, I'll kind of set the, uh, the pace of the story. I'll go quickly. We, we had to drive, and they're teaching you evasive driving. Mm-hmm. So they would put this solution all over the track, and they had old cars where you, if you step on the brakes, the horn blows, and that let them know you're stepping on the brakes. So they're trying to teach you to, 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 in order to drive in bad weather condition, you don't use the brakes. And we had this one white instructor. He would get so angry when you step on the brakes. And I stepped on the brakes one day, and it was about, it had snowed, eight, nine inches of snow. He, he made a snowball, and he threw it at me. And you had to have the windows cracked. And the snowball hit me on the side of the head. Mm. And I stopped the car, and I got out of the car, and I went to grab him to whip his behind. And the the other recruit stopped me. And he told me, you're going to be thrown out of this academy, so on and so forth. Well, as as soon as we were bused back to the academy, I went to see the academy first sergeant, who happened to be black. And I explained to him what happened. I said, now, where I come from and how I grew up, that's an assault. Mm-hmm. And any law book, you look it up, it's still an assault if somebody throws something at you and hits you. And I said, now, he's telling me I'm going to be thrown out of the academy. So why I'm getting thrown out? Let me get this lawsuit together. And he told me, young man, you don't worry about that. I'll take it from here. But that was that was my first encounter with a racist incident as a trooper. Mm. I can mm. take you to the to the gun range. Take me to the gun I, range. I grew up in the city, but I never shot a weapon. So if you don't know the seven fundamentals of shooting, proper stance, grip, and all that, it takes you time to get used to the recoil. We were shooting three fifty sevens back then. Ooh. And you got and you got it, it's a lot of recoil. Mm-hmm. And I just one instructor, you know, you, you ain't gonna you ain't no good, you're not gonna make it, blah, blah, blah. And I mean to the point, I didn't qualify when everybody else qualified. But I tell you, God always have a ram in the bush because another black sergeant took a liking to us. To me, we used to play basketball together. 
And he would he asked him, how's everything going? And I sit down and began to tell him how how demeaning that they were at the range. And they gave me I had to go. We were in the academy Monday through Friday and you get the weekend off. You had to stay at the academy. And I had to go that Saturday morning to shoot. It was probably five degrees outside. And if I didn't qualify on that Saturday morning, they told me I would be thrown out of the academy. Mm. But that black instructor on his day off, he had nothing to do with it. He came up there and he stood beside me to make sure that I was treated right. And the rest is history because I became a Maryland State Trooper. Not only that, I became a firearms instructor. Mm-hmm. But it just showed if you allow it, it'll affect you yeah. and everything that you do. Yeah, and in the uh, FBI Academy, I was the only African American in the class in 1998. You explain that. <laughs> 50, 52, 52 people. They started with two. They washed one out, and I was the only one. And 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 you knew the eyes were always on you. Right. That's because we're so pretty. And I take it. <laughs> I take it. <laughs> oh man! So okay, walk me through it. Walk me chronologically through it, right? So you you at the academy, right? And while at the academy, right now you're a trooper, right? You become a trooper, and then the next step from there, you go where? Uh, for me, I went. I was always interested in SWAT, so as a mm. tryout. Right. By the time I got on the SWAT team, it was 600 applicants. They took 13 people. Mm-hmm. Right. And if what I tell the, you, what were, the, what were the qualifications though? Like, what were the what was the? Uh, okay, you know, so you had to say you you had to do a mile and a half run in a certain amount of time. You had 13 seconds to get up and down, up about 30 feet up in the air on a rope to climb up and get down. You had to do probably uh, it was 84 setups and 62 push-ups. In a minute. Wait a and, second. And 84 sit-ups in a minute? 84 sit-ups in a minute. I'm 20 years old. You feel like you can run through the wall. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. So so it was it was pretty stringent. Then they gave you an interview. And and I tell you, the, I, I come off a night shift, which is night shift. We work 11 at night to 7 in the morning. Then I had to take the test. And I'm doing the test. And I remember pushing the floor. And then when I woke up, I was in the doctor's office at the facility because I blacked out. I knew it was for me. So what they did was they, because I wasn't able to complete the test, they let me come back and retest. And then I retest, blew it out the water, you know, but, and we had five teams. We had five, six man teams, 30 people. It was only four African-Americans. Hmm. And so that you got some of the best training. They sent you all around the country training other people and so on and so forth. So that was the highlight for me. I was a I was a PT instructor at the academy at some point. I taught some criminal law classes. I was in charge of in service for the uh, all the state police and then for other agencies. You know, so I didn't spend a lot of time on the road, two or three years making traffic stops. I also mm-hmm. worked internal affairs for the Division of Correction. Mm. So for me, it was always trying to get to the next level because I was working my way through college at the same time. Okay, two questions. What was one of your most notable cases or, that you worked on or situations? Uh, uh, and when I say notable, well, I'm, I mean, I want to hear something that was very e- either, you know, intense or just something that stands out in your mind that you'll never forget uh, while you were on SWAT. We had a we had a hostage barricade on the eastern shore. That's on the lower part of Maryland, on the eastern side of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And we have been we have been actually land in position almost seventeen hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow the 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 perp let the 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 hostage go, but had stabbed the hostage pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so the state's attorney tells us, okay, you got to go in and check the welfare. That means we got to go and get them. That's the legal way of going in to get them is you got to go in and check welfare. 
Mm-hmm. And so we do our normal layout and we do all the stuff that we do. And I'm the point man at the time, so I'm the first one through the door. But before you go through the door, I holster my weapon because my cover fire is over top of me. And I know he has me protected. And I use a mirror on a long stick and try to shine the light on the ceiling and scan in that room to look around in that room and see what was going on. Right. And I couldn't see the bad guy. So we had canine assigned to the team. So I called for the canine handler to bring him up and put him in and for him to check the residence. And normally we had the meanest canine. He'd go in and he'd he tan stuff up. He was quiet. And what happened, he picked up the scent of somebody else who had been injured and was unconscious, and that's where he sat. While the bad guy, we didn't have no idea where he was. So long story short, we make entry. And normally I would have called a crisscross. Well, I go one way, my cover fire go, and we pinch the corners and look in. This time I called a button hook where we stayed together. We hit the inside wall because you can see it, and we looped around inside the room. And the guy was standing right behind the door with a shotgun, and he shot himself. Wow. Brain matter hit the ceiling. Hit us, you name it. Wow, you know, and and what was he? What was I mean? He took his life. I know, but what was the case to begin with? Like, what was the what was going on? We we don't get involved in that. As SWAT, you don't get see his. You don't even know what happened. Your job is to just come. Right. So when the citizens get in trouble, they call the police. When the police get in trouble, they call SWAT. Right, so it was just a hostage barricade. That's how the call comes out to us. And then you get in your game face and you go and you respond and then you get in position to do what you have to do. But I'll tell you what was worse than that. 9-11. I was in the Pentagon. You you, you were there? I was in the Pentagon. My four-man team took the first 17 bodies out of the Pentagon and put them in body bags. Tell me about that day. Talk so, to me about so that. what happened? It was the prettiest day. If you, all, if anybody remember, it was just a was, beautiful I was morning. New, I was in New York at that time. I had just come in from a run. I was sitting on a wiretap, just ran a couple miles and came in the shower, got dressed to go up just to to do my briefing for the wiretap that we was on. And I happened to turn on the television, and then I see the first plane. I said. That that's that didn't look normal. That that, that that person was that looked like that was on purpose. Hmm. Right? So by the time the second plane hit, they put out a page in the field office, all agents report to your squad area and prepare we're going to New York. Hmm. And so we were on the sixth floor. Our floor was our building was eight floors, eight stories. And I'm standing there looking out the window trying to get on the cell phone to call my wife and tell her I'm going to have to go to New York. I don't know what's going on. And I see the Pentagon. I see the smoke coming from the Pentagon. So then it was stand down. And I tell you what they did, and it was crazy because we were, at the time, we were a reactive squad, which, you know, you did the jump outs. You did the drug work. They told all of us to get our MP5s. That's our machine guns. They took our squad and said, now, we're going to put you all around the whole building. You're going to guard the building. And if something comes over top, now, number one, it's moving too fast to shoot it, correct? <laughs> right. Number two, if we shoot it, who's going to die? All of us. And they put us out there and said, guard the building until they can get all the uniform police from the FBI activated. And so it went from there to it was just total chaos. Cars were sitting on top of each other in D.C. You couldn't move. Then they somehow got it clear for us to get down to the Pentagon. If you remember, the Pentagon burnt for two days because it was jet fuel. Nobody had anticipated, you know, that you need to have the chemicals to put out the fire. So by day three, we we are told that we have to go in now and start accounting for bodies. And we, my team of four, they put you in this Tyvek suit. You can't breathe. But you covered up, respirator, and it was about 100 degrees, and that suit was about 150. 
Mm. So you go inside and you can see, man, I tell you, you can see where people saw death coming and they hugged each other. And that's how you found them hugged. And, and they, they were burnt. They were burnt. And so that's how you separate in your mind. Okay, I'm here just to do a job, right? And you will put glow sticks beside the body. You know, you break the glow stick and glow. So, you know, as you're passing through, this is what we got to pick up. This is what we got to do. And so it, 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 I pray to God we never see anything like that ever again. Hmm. That's the first time in my career I was on that scene for 20 hours, and I'm trying to drive home. I had to pull over because I, I just broke down. I couldn't make it. And and then you take that, and two or three days later, I'm, I'm put on what's called a post-mortem team. Well, you have to go around the country, and we have to try to talk to, identify any family members or who was on Flight 77. And we had to go around and collect DNA so we would have something for the examiners to compare to identify who these people were. Prayerfully, mm. we never go through it again. Wow. And after doing that, you they allow you, perhaps you talk to the psychologist or psychiatrist maybe one or two days. And people right. had problems after that. Of course. It's not the movies. No, it's not the movies. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't understand. You know, they look, I'm like, yeah, that's. I remember, I remember one house I went into. Of course, I, the names far exceed me, slipped my mind. I wouldn't say them anyway. But this one gentleman he, in D.C., his, his wife was a pilot, was a flight attendant on the flight. And she wasn't supposed to be on the flight. She picked up an extra shift and was on the flight. And when I went to his door, this man cussed me like there was no tomorrow when I said I'm from the FBI. I mean, every word he could say, he said it to me. Right? And when he got done, for 15 minutes, I stood there and let him say what he needed to say. And I said, sir, I'm here to help you. And they broke down in my arms. He knew why you were there. He knew. He knew. And then I had to go on. The last person I notified was down in Leesburg, Virginia. Three weeks after the incident. Finally identified who the survivor was, the surviving spouse. Went to their residence. And I have another female agent with me. And when I walked in, she let us in. I told her, you know, we're here from the FBI. And I began to tell, you know, before I can even get it out, she just grabbed me and started crying. And I stood there holding that lady for one whole hour. Suit is worn from, from the, but these things you'll never hear about. Right. Right, you know? right, right. And oftentimes I wondered, you know, we couldn't stay in touch because it's a violation of the, the uh, oath that you take in the ethics but I oftentimes wonder how both of those <clears throat> individuals made out. Well, you could probably check on them now, huh? It, yeah, that might not be a bad idea now. You know, if I can get the names, because, you know, you do so much. Yeah. You've done so much over the years. Names slip your mind. But the incident still so, so stands out part, in your... That's part of the job, huh? You have to kind of compartmentalize. Is that a, is that you a have way to. of things? Absolutely. You if you don't, separate. you'll never survive. You would never survive. Do they teach you how to do that? Or is that just something? Is that not part of the training? It's not really part of the training. It's something you pick up over the years from talking to. Be, yeah. Right. But talking to some senior agents and senior troopers, and they tell you, man, you can't let this thing get to you. You know, when you go home, you have to leave your job, leave work at work and go home to your family. Some A lot of people struggle with that, and they take the problems home. Hence, troubling most of the marriages. Yeah. But it, it should be taught. I was going to say, you know, uh, especially during this pandemic, right? I mean, the numbers of domestic abuse amongst law enforcement is very high. It's high. I mean, they should probably have some sort of uh, 
something set up, you know, like, you know, billions to show billions, you know, you got to have an in-house cow, somebody there for you to talk to. Or at least somewhere where you can unwind. Um, I got to the point where where my wife, a really good close friend of mine had a conversation, you know, you have difficulties at times. And Mm -hmm. he said to her, I can only tell you what it's like for me. And he said, when he first come in, Give him that 10 or 15 minutes just to unwind. Sit in the favorite chair, take your shoes off, take the gum belt off, get your thoughts together, and then go in. And it helped man, us. Man, it's, you, it's so funny that you said that because, you know, I mean, you, you can never judge somebody or, or, or walk in somebody else's shoes because you just don't know, right? You know, whose who's cross it is to bear burden, you know, whatever. It's like right. – but it's funny because I think on some level <laughs> we all go through. I, I'm, I would never compare what I do in, in the days that I've had in the you know stress that I've gone through and the mental stress to the you know to what you've gone through either you know. But I would say the same thing. I would be like, hey, I need like an hour. Right, just so, I'm, just just give me an hour. And, and she'd be like, well, you know, it takes you about an hour to get home. I'm like, that's traffic. No. Right. That's even a, worse. <laughs> right. I'm like, that's not, that's not. <laughs> what are you missing? I, I know. Right. No. I need, I need to walk into this room right here. As a matter of fact, don't even tell the kids I'm home. Right. But then I can Just give the best me I could possibly be. So right. it was so funny. It's so funny. My oldest son called me last year with the same speech. He said, Dad, I don't understand. You know, I told him, oh, when I come home, just give me, give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, just give me a second. Just give me a minute. I just, all I ask is just give me 15 minutes, please. You, you I said, know, I said, oh, no, no, no. You exactly. <laughs> when, you, when you was living in my house, you, you didn't understand that. Right. Absolutely. Understand? Now you the shoe on the other foot. Question. Yes. 9-11. Was it really what they say it was or was it something different? No, that's what they said it was. And more. And brother, I'll tell you, it would have been a whole lot worse had the airline not been shut down and all flights restricted. Because, mm-hmm. you know, and the conspiracy you, theories out there say, you know, that it wasn't just them, that we played a part in that. But if you remember, we were in a transition of governments. Do you remember Yes, I do. I do. And, and information probably should have been flowing more readily than it was because it exposed vulnerabilities. Right. And it's too late to respond when the plan has already been executed. Right. You're just going to clean up and hope it doesn't be as bad as it potentially could be. So you said it could have been worse, is what you said. Oh, yeah. No question. It could have. Look, when I worked terrorism, I used to say this. I didn't like it, and I'll tell you why I didn't like it. I was so used to being on a reactive squad, a drug squad, homicide investigations, where you can see the results of your work. When you work terrorism, you have no way of measuring how successful you are. The only way you can measure it is they didn't blow up another building. They didn't mm-hmm. have another Pentagon strike. And, and if the public knew the things that was actually stopped by the FBI and other agencies out there, you, you wouldn't sleep well. Hmm. I mean, we're, you're constantly under threat by other, by other governments. Don't get it twisted. So this is just the, the average American, the average citizen doesn't even realize that. So it's basically, it's basically like an episode of 24. That's correct. And maybe... On a higher scale, if, again, you have no way of measuring how successful you are until you, you have a failure. And I hate to say that, but mm. the failure exposes your weaknesses. When you stop so many that may appear to be small on the surface, but because you stopped them at the beginning stages, they don't have the opportunity to, to escalate into something worse. So why, So what do you think caused 9-11? You had a terrorist group. And see, here's what we have to understand about terrorism. And this is what makes them so dangerous. Okay? I'm, I'm going to give you a revelation. They're not afraid to die. In fact, they believe that if I die and become a martyr, 
I'm going to have some rewards waiting for me on the other side. Right. And the average American, we are afraid to die because we don't want to leave our loved ones behind. And so when you fight an enemy like that, you, you, you had a whole nother level of, of what you have to come up with because they will drive right up to the police station with a bomb trying to take you out because they're not afraid to die. That, that, that's, that's something to think about, and we don't look at it like that. I got my biggest lesson. Let me share this with you. Yes. Um, I, I, I was the acting unit chief for 13 months for the, for the drug program where I was responsible for supervising the whole drug program for the FBI over the country and down in Mexico City and Bogota and, and Bangkok, Thailand, right? And I could never understand. We look at Mexico as been having a certain level of corruption, mm-hmm. right? And so we, we on the outside try to police Mexico on our standards, and you can't because the things register and they, they equate differently in that country. Right. And, and so that was the biggest lesson for me to learn that you can't police them like you police in the United States. You have to understand their culture. Then you have to understand their laws. And then you can help out because you may have something to contribute to the conversation where you look at it a little out of a different set of eyes. Interesting. And, and we get in trouble a lot of times trying to police other people like we were police here when their standard of living and their custom is different. Which is why they get mad. They're like, hey, we didn't, yeah. ask, you. We didn't ask you to come in. Come on, man. Everybody don't want to be a democracy. This is our house. We didn't ask you for all that's that. That's it. And that's what happens. Everybody don't want to be a democracy. And they're well, okay with that. This this ain't a democracy either. But that's, nope. a, that's a topic <laughs> for a whole nother day. <laughs> we, we don't live in a democracy. That is the pie that they're selling. And some people eat it. Some people eat that pie. Uh, white supremacy, you know, is has not been declared as a terrorist group. Has not been declared as a terrorist group. Fractions of it, you may see fractions declared, but as a whole, no. Okay. So, so fractions of it, uh, let's talk about those fractions. Now, shouldn't they be considered the same type of threat or the same level of threat that uh, any foreign because this is domestic terrorism that we're talking about, right? So should they or should they not be considered the same just as much as a threat? Because because of their white privilege, they might be scared to die, but that white privilege overrides that to where they don't think that they're going to die or that they, you know, be, even be held accountable. And, and the reality is some of them aren't held accountable. Which is... And haven't been held accountable for years. And why is that? And they why? and and some of them are in your governments, in your local governments, in your state governments, in your federal government. Speak on it. We l- listen. I've been telling people for years. I've been telling people for years. What do you What do you think? What, what do you think? They they no. They infiltrated on purpose. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> you know they assimilated. That's what they do. And then they bring the other cronies in to help them govern. And when they're ready to, to do whatever they need to do, they have nobody to fight because they surrounded themselves with like-minded folk. Now, when did you realize this? Probably, i tell you, something happened to him at the state police. And if I tell you, you wouldn't believe it. No, I need you to tell me. I need you to tell me. I had been on the job. I worked in Prince Frederick, Maryland. That's way in the suburbs. And it was Southern Maryland. It was only three blacks in the whole county. Right? Good Lord. Good Lord. I, I report to work probably two weeks on the job after being cut loose to be my own trooper for my field training. The sergeant calls me in. He's a white sergeant. And he says, uh, I need you. I'm just getting to work on, on 3 to 11 shift. He said, I need you to respond to Annapolis. You have been assigned to a Ku Klux Klan rally. Go ahead and sit back and get your breath. Because the first thing I said to him, I said, man, do you see how black I am? This sounds like a Spike Lee movie. Go ahead. That's what he said. He, he said to me, 
I'm not worried about how black you are. When you sign up to be a Maryland State Police, you sign up to protect all the citizens of Maryland. And I couldn't say anything, right? I got in my patrol car and I drove up to Annapolis and I was on the front line and they got on Grand Poobah hoods spewing rhetoric. But you know what? They treated me like I was gold. And I couldn't figure it out. Somebody made a call. Told me maybe that was it. Somebody <laughs> or maybe the Lord call. was just looking out for me. Somebody made a call and told him you was coming and they thought you was Clarence Biggs. He's one of us. <laughs> He's one of us. Leave him alone. So seriously, to ask your question, from day one, I realized that it racism exists. And you and 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 what we used to do, and I think this is the difference in all sincerity. I remember an incident on the SWAT team, and I, I wanted to tell the story for, for a reason, because you'll see what I'm saying. We, we were in Edmondson Village, which is one of the notorious areas in Baltimore. Very rarely did our SWAT team go in the city to help the city because they outnumber our police department, right? And we got called in to help with a, 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 a drug warrant. And Upland's apartment, it's so bad, it's torn down now. And so we would go in, and we would clear a house in seven seconds. A, t- a typical two-story, three-story house, two or three bedrooms upstairs, your lower level in the basement. On your initial sweep, you cleared in seven. You come back because you're just looking for bodies. Everybody down, they get flex cuff. You do a secondary sweep to make sure you don't, didn't miss anybody, you missed any weapons. Then you turn the scene over to the investigators. And my team leader, he is now deceased. At the time, I watched him take his foot. He kicked an 85-year-old black man out the chair down to be cuffed. I did the, finished doing the assignment, and I said, I need to see you outside. And it, he, he outranked me. He was a sergeant. I was a TFC at the time, trooper first class. And I said to him, you had no right to kick that man out the seat, out out his chair. You know, and he looked at me, are you talking to me? I said, yes, I'm talking to you. I said, in fact, I'm going to report to the on-scene commander what happened. And if I'd ever see it again, I'll deal with you myself. Now, was I out of line? I might have been subordinate. I might have been insubordinate. However, that w- I looked at that as my grandfather, as your grandfather, and, and and it had to be checked. And we don't if we if we were police ourselves and police each other, Hold you wouldn't have some of the incidents that you have. Hold each other accountable. I'm so glad that you said that, man. And that, that has been the running theme and the running. Uh, I'm I'm stuck for SAT words today. The bottom line, right. the, the bottom line is, you know, if if only there were more of you, black and white and right. white, you need both. because. Because because you can't do it. Obviously, you can't do it alone. And obviously, you know, sometimes it makes, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, it makes a bigger impact when it's coming from one of their own. You know, but you're right. If we don't hold each other accountable or if they're not being held and, and you know, dare I say they they because I'm not in law enforcement. So we as civilians, you know, we don't we don't we didn't start the hold us against they. That is not us against them. That is not something we started. No. We didn't start the us against them. You know, just like we didn't, as blacks, start the us against them. It started when you were considered two-thirds of a man. And we have lived with this this stigma all of our life. So what do you think is going to happen? Like, what, what does it take, in your opinion? What does it take to make a difference or to make a change or to bridge that gap and to improve the relations between law enforcement and the communities that they serve or that they're supposed to serve? What do you think is, is going to take? One, we talk about defunding the police, and then that gets people in an uproar because they don't necessarily understand or because it's not being clear as to what defunding, defunding the police uh, means. Now, I've heard people say, no, we're not saying take away or stop paying. We're saying, hey, all that money that you took from the communities before, you know, whereas you 
yourself didn't have to start your own karate dojo and have a place in the community for people to go. There were money that was given to these communities to be able to have places like this for people, but they took it. So that's what they're saying. Divert, not totally. But I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear. I want to hear your thoughts on that. I want to hear your thoughts on. Well, you have to approach that from so many different angles. Okay, Mm -hmm. number one, will this work today? It worked twenty, thirty years ago. And if you look at society, it's just a cycle repeating itself. I remember officer friendly in the neighborhood, community policing, drug officers in the school where they were involved in foot patrol. We, 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 used to, we, we got put on a task force to go in the bad areas around the state, and we played basketball with the neighborhood. While we were playing basketball, we presented resources to the neighborhood. And, and, and a lot of those things have been taken away, just as you said, the recreation center where kids had somewhere to go. And, and so the approach has to be from a training, from a community involvement, from a reorganization. If, you, if I ask you, do you know what the police officer bill of rights are? You probably know. Police officers have a bill of rights that gives them certain authority to, to act. And we need to look at that. When they act out of character or when they act and it's found to be malice, then they don't need to be protected by all of the rights in the Bill of Rights for police officers. It has to be some accountability. You can't keep killing the community and then want the community to work with you. And then some real conversations have to be had. You know, get from behind the desk. Go out into these communities. And get involved in the community, but but they actually have to give a fuck for they have to care. Hey, for, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, it's gotta, you know, it, it can't be a what's in it for me because right. otherwise, that, listen, I, I tell you personally, for me, I, I'm a pastor now. Yes, I've been in church since the time I was in law enforcement, and man, if I tell you how many people have said to me, white and black, and I locked them up. And if you deserve to get your behind beat, you got it beat. But when you didn't deserve it, you got treated like a gentleman or a, a lady. And you got treated with respect because at the end of the day, you're still a person. Exactly. I mean, I was talking about this with uh, someone and I was just saying it, it's just so crazy how, you know, we allowed it. I think we allowed it as much as we could allow it, you know, the tables to be turned. It's like being in an abusive relationship with, with, you know, and, and then you you have no one to to tell or call because you have no you have no outreach, you have no no lifeline, you have no help, and you have nowhere to turn and nowhere to go. When you're like, okay, well, I've watched them do this over and over, right? So you feel hopeless. You feel like there's no no answer. There's no solution. I tell you and what, then, we better we better hope we, and pray. What we need to really hope and pray is that. Black people like yourself and, and, and me, that we don't decide to get together and arm yes. all around the country and fight that's back. Was, that's what I was getting ready to say. When you're put in a position. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. no, 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 no. Don't, what, don't you dare apologize for nothing <laughs> like that. Don't you dare apologize. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you, listen, you got to go through something to be on the other side of it because otherwise, you know, that's the only thing that, that people can then recognize. Like, and that's what I was just getting ready to say. Once you put in that position, once you are forced with your back up against the wall, you know, instincts kick in, fight or flight, you know, and, and, but once, you know, somebody who's been abused and been beaten and once you've had enough, it's like a woman's once, once you've had enough, once you've been scorned, it's game time at that point. It's over. It's over. It's over because you're left with no other options. You know, so you, you, at that point, you got to do what you got to do. I'll share one other incident with you. Racism in the FBI. Please do. Okay. I was, I was oof, four months from retirement. I put my paperwork in February. Now, for 20 years, I have been filling my time sheet out the same time. 
right? And then with less than 30 days, around 30 days, they, they charged me saying that I falsified my time. I said, brother, I've been filling my time out the same way. I said, so you do what you have to do, and I'll do what I have to do. Now, let me tell you why they did that. I had to go four years prior. I was in an assignment where it was only nine of us around the country, OSTEF coordinator, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, and we were responsible for a region. I had the Mid-Atlantic region. Mm. Had 150 other local departments that were that we were responsible for organizing task forces and ca- taking care of overtime. Had nothing since I've been on the job but the highest evaluation you can get. I get a call on a Friday at 5 o'clock from a section chief who happened to be white, and he's gone on, a, he's deceased now, and said to me, I said, everything all right? He said, he said yeah, he said, but um, I, I'm going to have to move you back to headquarters, right? I said, yeah, move me back to headquarters. I, I was assigned to, my office was now in Baltimore, closer to home. Mm-hmm. He says, I got to take care of somebody. Because I made them a promise, right? So I said, okay, well, what about me? He said, well, you have two options. You can step down and stay there and no longer be a supervisor and be a field agent again, or you can come back to headquarters and be a supervisor. That, that ain't no option to me, right? And so I, long or the short, he was supposed to get back to me the next week. He didn't. And somebody must have gotten his ear because they couldn't post the job because of sequestration. That's why I was in there six years instead of five because of sequestration. They couldn't post. Soon as it released, they post the job. And who gets the job? The guy that he wants to put in the job. And I've been doing it for six years with the highest Mm -hmm. evaluation you can get. So I had to wait for him to take the job for the adverse impact and I never had to file a grievance in my career because I've been a man to go to you and say, well, what are you doing? I would have just preferred him to say to me, come on in the office and meet with me. Tell me a lie. Tell me, look, I got to take care of my man, but I'm going to hook you up. And then if you never did, at least you was up front. Right. Right. So I filed a grievance and we went through adjudication and they offered a a small settlement. I can't go into the details because you signed stuff because they knew they had done wrong. But it still left me at headquarters. And then so the way they got me back on my way out the door, they, they put a charge there. So it's saying you left under distress. One of my paperwork had been in since February. You know, that, that's how they play the game. And so I was looking to go back in a civilian position, and they blocked it because of that bogus charge. So, yes, it exists like you can't imagine. <sighs> the struggle continues. The struggle continues. The struggle continues. Mm, 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 mm. You know, one of the one of the things that I think most people are excited to know, such as myself, is that you're not alone. We're not in this alone. It's not just happening to you or, or, or by yourself. You know, and I'm constantly telling my sons. I got four sons. I'm constantly telling my sons. And trying to share as much information with them and trying to pour as much as I can into them so that they uh, are armed with knowledge, with information, uh, so that they build an armor inside them that shines, you know, for the whole world to see, you know, that they have self-pride, they know self-worth. Because uh, they don't teach it in the schools. You know, like I said, the first line of offense and defense starts at home. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that in two seconds. Uh, I want to jump back into something uh, that you mentioned um, in the uh, drug division. Recently, Oregon became the first state in the nation to decriminalize possession of and personal use of hard drugs. What are your thoughts on this? Act? And, and do you think race played a part in this? I don't know if it played a part, but I would venture to say somewhere down the line it showed his ugly face or where it is here. But you, you, you look at the damage done by hard narcotics. Right. And, and you, you are you're opening yourself up for disaster. Now, you, you can argue about marijuana because it has medicinal purposes 
I'm not a chemist. I'm not a doctor. But hard drugs that you know is brain altering mm-hmm. and it's going to cause you to act out mm-hmm. and get out of character. Something's wrong with that. The reason I ask about race, the reason I ask about race is because a considerable amount of black individuals who were locked up for marijuana, for non-hard drugs, but given crazy sentences, crazy time based on the just say no and the, you know, different, different, you know, uh, laws that were passed during that time because they didn't know what to do. So they just went crazy, whipped out the belt and just wanted to beat everybody, you know, and, 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 and so now these laws are changing. But meanwhile, you got some of the best marketing and CEOs in this marijuana game locked up. But once it started hitting their homes and with their kids and then in their neighborhoods, you know, this opioid situation and this opioid addiction, now it's a problem. Now we have a pandemic. It wasn't a problem before. The same stuff that you put in our communities wasn't. But but now, now it's a it's a it's a. We need to treat people, same people that you criminalized. Now we need to treat them. So I, I definitely believe that. You asked your own question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, but I wanted to know your opinion on it. I mean, that's those are my thoughts for sure. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I have seen it. You know, a part of this, this organized crime drug enforcement task force, we started looking at all these people that were dying from fentanyl. Right. And they weren't dying in Baltimore City. Right. They were dying in the suburbs. Right. And it, it just, it, it just, it got, it just started getting fentanyl. I don't know if you know much about it, man. It's taking a lot of folk out. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a plan? That's the question. Sure. Sure. Uh, it wouldn't be any different from, you know, any of the other plans. You know, it wouldn't be different. It wouldn't be any different from any other other time that they planned it. Everything's a plan. Everything's Absolutely. a plan. There's an agenda for everything, including this this vaccine. That's a whole nother show. There, there's everything is a plan. Everything is a plan. What, what, did you okay during your tenure in these different divisions? You know, especially drug. Now that we're staying on drug, were there any differences made for the same crimes being committed by whites and blacks? Absolutely. I mean, you, you see that in the court system, even right, inside saying, saying that you witness personally, right? Inside, inside of the bureau, inside of um, even my time as a state police. Every now and then, you would see if people get in trouble for the same situation. But if you were black, the punishment seemed to be double or or harsher. You know, it it exists in the workforce. You know. You can't get away with saying something that your, some of your counterparts that don't look like you might get away with saying. You'd be off the air before you can bat your eyes. You talking about in this this particular platform? That radio, television. Well, I mean, the good thing about podcasts, the good thing about what we do is we can say, you know, I mean, you might limit yourself with regards to sponsors, with regards right. to people, you know, but. You know, the the very great thing about this is we can say whatever we want to say. Well, that, then that is a great venue to be in because most of the time can say you held to different standards. My, one of my producers might not like that because he, he's he, I'm pretty sure he's usually scared when I when I get like this, he, you know, but then he just won't put it on the air. He'll cut it out because he doesn't <laughs> want to stop some of our money coming in, which I it's still being controlled. That's the point I'm making. And but, you know, we definitely have a lot of platforms. We have a lot of platforms where we are allowed to say what we want to say. Well, good. good. You know, without without, you know, with impunity, without worried about anything, you know, and, and, I, and I applaud these these different platforms like this and who and, and you know, People like, you know, Diddy, who created Revolt, where, you know, you can get on these different platforms and, and say whatever you want to say, you know, because the truth is the truth without without, you know, and that's how they've held stuff over our head for years, you know, years. But, yes. you know, but, you know, with the the 
emergence of social media and these different ways of communicating now, we don't have to. We don't have to go through the middleman. We don't have to. We can go directly to the source. Um, would you, would you, as a black man who has been in this uh, field for quite some time, would you encourage other black men to get into law enforcement? And if so, which division? I would, but after a lot of conversation, a lot of prayer, um, I would encourage the, the state police was really good to me, though I had some situations here and there. It was a launching pad for me because you received some of the best training. Mm-hmm. And it, it propelled me to, to go on with the FBI. Now, I have people come to me all the time, and I'll help them if they're serious. I still have some contacts, and I'll try to help them. But I want you not to go into it blind. Don't think mm-hmm. it's quasi love and everybody's going to love you. You know, you're going to have a, a love period, and then you're going to have a period where you're fighting. You know, but as long as you understand and and one thing, you had Carrie Daniels on. We used to be partners, right? And one thing we used to do, man, we had each other's back. Right. And we looked out for each other. And I, I would just hope that any uh, black uh, individuals that's going to join now don't lose that. Lean on each other because you can help. If I can help avoid, help you avoid going through some of the same things that I went through, we'll find a better way to approach it. That's one of the things that I've heard, uh, one of the consistent through lines that with, with uh, a lot of the agents that I've spoken with is that you guys did look out for each other. And I, I dig I dig that, man. That is definitely something that we have to start doing with each other now. I mean, back look, back in the day, that's what it was, right? We all looked out for each other in our neighborhoods, in our communities. But you know. Even the drug dealer looked out for the neighborhood. You think back for a minute. Yes, of course he did. Listen, listen, I grew up with some of the most I grew up with some of the most notorious drug dealers that that, you know, that, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, that was running around in D.C., running around in Mm -hmm. town. And I'm I'm not scared to say their names because they know me. They know me. You know, I'm talking about Alpo. You know, I'm I'm talking about Mr. Edmonds. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I knew these guys. And they, I know they, well. They, they definitely took care of, you know, and that's they definitely took care of the neighborhoods. So that's like three more shows. That's three <laughs> other. That's three other shows that we can understand. Get into. Let me ask you this. All right. So from your experiences and in successful career, uh, you've been on both sides. You're inside and you're outside, and you're also a black man. What do you think is the greatest threat to the black community today? Ourself. Boom. Speak on it. It's us. And why do you say if we can unite, we have a stronger voice. We always, and black lives do matter, but it should matter when we're killing each other over nonsense in our own community. Mm-hmm. It should matter then also, as it matter when we are confronted with law enforcement or racism. If we can unite, we can change the world. Facts. I, I don't even want to add to that. I, I, I don't even want to add to that because that's just powerful in itself. But we'll pull each other down because I don't want you to get ahead of me. But if you get ahead of me, you may be able to reach down and help pull me up. And then we pull up the next one. And then we become the CEOs running our own operations. We become about, our own bank. It's about we lend money to our own communities. It's about organizing. That's it. It's about organizing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about platforms like this that give the information, whether we motivate, inspire, encourage, inform, it's all wealth. It's all currency. It's what you do with the currency. That matters. Facts. Facts. Uh, George, it's been great having you today, man. It has been definitely great having you today. You have, uh, you have inspired me, man. You, you know, you, Touched me a couple of times today, brother. You know, because it's glad to be here. 
it's just good to know that, that, you know, there's people like yourself still out there that care, you know, and that, that want to make a difference that joined, that did certain things and, and, and gave their, gave themselves to us, to our communities and that you were doing it to be of service. You know, when you and Carrie, what, 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 what were you and Carrie working on when you guys were partners? Or what, or what? Uh, we worked uh, terrorism matters. Um, we, he was picked for the same squad, handpicked. We were all on reactive drug squads, and then we were picked to try to approach terrorism from a different angle. Instead of intelligence collecting, now look at them as criminals and do the use the same procedure to go after them for crimes and just not intel collection. So we had a ball, man. I tell you, it was never. You you met him. It was never a dog. You got to give me a story, man. Give me a oh, story. Man, it was, give me some. Give me look, some. His two kids. I'm an early morning person. We were commuting to D.C. And so I'm getting in the office five o'clock. You get your workout in. You upstairs ready to go to work about seven thirty, eight o'clock. And we ready to hit the street and do what we do. Kai comes strolling in the door, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. I had to drop the kids off to school. I said, man, your kid's been in college for 30 years. <laughs> but but we had a ball, man. We we good friends today. I tell you, that that brother has, has a special place in my heart. He's, I, he's, one of the, he's one of my black belts in my school that I have trained from the time he started. Wow. So wow. it was... Now, did you guys ever find yourselves in any sticky situations where you had to look out for each other? We did some undercover stuff periodically, yeah. and, and we would look out for each other. You know, well, I, if, I, if I needed to act like I was calling up my supplier, I would dial him and we'd shoot the bobo for a minute to, to, to role play. But yeah, we had a ball, man. We had a ball. We had a ball. I would have loved to see you two in the field, like <laughs> being undercover, acting like <laughs> we did, we did. But it, it, you know, he, he a great person. You know, another per, a person with a pure heart and got in for the service, and not so much could he move up the ladder and become the next the next SAC. But he enjoyed what he did. Facts, so, facts. George Green, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.